Welcome to Mulling It Over with Brandon Mole. Hi, I'm Brandon Mole. I'm a number one New York Times bestselling author of a bunch of fantasy series like the Fable Haven series and many more. And I'm Jason Conforto. I'm a filmmaker, a podcaster, and game designer. In this podcast, we're excited to share our love for story and our passion to create. We hope to share a bunch of experiences and lessons learned over a lifetime in creative fields. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Episode one. Yeah, where we uh, we get to start out talking about anything. I, I think the concept for this show is for us to talk about anything that is relevant to you and, and sounds fun to talk about. So Yeah, it's fun to be starting. And then it's fun to even now anticipate what the prequels might be someday. Yeah. <laughs> Do like a young Brandon, a young Jason. Yeah, yeah. You know, perfect, perfect. Middle school. Before we jump into the, the meat of our episode today, we kind of just wanted to talk about our goals for this podcast, what it's looking like, what we're hoping to accomplish. I think in 2024, our goal is just to... To release monthly episodes, right? Where we get together once a month, we we talk about topics and share that with all of Brandon's fans. So that's that's the big goal. And then hopefully, you know, if this takes off and, and people want to hear more and and find themselves not getting enough Brandon Bowl in their lives, then we can uh, we can look into yeah. weekly, daily, <laughs> yeah, daily, minute by minute. <laughs> What's he doing right now? Just the sound of clattering keyboards in yes. the background, typing. Yeah, exactly. So that's our that's our goal. Well, yeah. So so let me explain. I'll explain who I am because some people might find this and not have any idea who is Brandon Mole. And I am a writer of fantasy adventure novels. My best known series is probably Fable Haven, which has a sequel series called Dragon Watch. I also wrote um, Beyonders, Five Kingdoms, and um, a variety of series. Candy Shop War. I created a series called Spirit Animals for Scholastic with a team of authors. So I've been doing this for a long time. I've been a professional author for about 20 years. And I thought it would be fun to have a podcast where we share just tips on writing and my experiences as a writer for anyone who's interested in the topic. For this episode today, we talked about a bunch of different possible topics, but the one that kind of rose to the top was the other end of the hippo. Do you want, do you want to explain to, to us what that is, the other end of the hippo? So the other end of the hippo was the first full-length novel I attempted. When, when I was in college... I desperate. I'd already desperately wanted to be a writer, and my my big concern was: can I feed a family, or can I can I feed a wife and kids, and and me? Which which I got married right at the end of college, and I, I didn't know if it would be a viable job. And so, but I, I knew I, I knew one thing: it was that I would never publish a novel if I never wrote a novel. And so, right when I got to the end of college, my wife said, "Hey, as a gift, you have a year to write a book," and the book that I wrote in that year as we had no kids yet and she worked and I wrote was called the other end of the hippo. And I'm sure like any first novel, it was immature in a lot of different ways. I, I know you, you shopped it around and, and got some uh, feedback and advice, but what, what, what was kind of the, the reaction to the other end of the hippo? Well, with the other end of the hippo, I'd always wanted to tell a Narnia style portal adventure story, but I really probably more than any book I've ever written. I just wrote it for me. Just mm -hmm. absolutely my own sensibilities and also absolutely like with no <laughs> logical planning on how I would sell it or who I would sell it to. Like like I knew I hoped to share it with people, but I, I didn't have a plan and I didn't really have a lot of research as far as what are the categories of a novel and <laughs> how do you find an audience for a novel? Right, right. right. And so that, that all, you know, as we talk a little more about this, you'll see how that kind of bit me in the backside. 
as I went forward. What I had done, the good thing I had done is I had practiced writing a lot. It was my first novel, but it wasn't my first story. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd written lots and lots of mediocre short stories. I've, I'd written a couple novellas, and I'd run a comedy troupe for a bunch of years writing comedy skits. So I had a, a pretty long history already for a, a recently graduated kid of having put a lot of words on page, and I, I had written a lot of stuff. And I felt like I was ready to write my first novel. And yes, in some ways, it was it was immature, both in the way I told the story and in my planning of how I would market this story. I mean, at, at the get-go, it, it's not the easiest get because you've got a kid who crosses into another world mm -hmm. through the gaping jaws of a hippo. Right, right. And proceeds to have adventures that we're supposed to be interested in and take seriously. I remember, just to, to kind of put this in perspective of where we were are in time for this story, this was 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Right after that year is when you and I met. Yes. So, so you and I uh, started working together at a company called Excel Entertainment, where we would distribute uh, films and and help with the marketing for for films and whatnot. And Indi that, independent films, yeah. yeah, little independent films. When I met you, you were you were excited about this book and had this book. I remember you giving me this is the first thing I ever read of yours was the other end of the hippo. And spoiler alert: uh, a lot of your audience has probably read a form of this book, right? So this book ended up becoming what? This It ended up becoming my Beyonders series. Mm -hmm. um, and that was after it evolved quite a bit from that first draft that you read. I remember early on, we worked with a gentleman by the name of Dean Hale, and he had a lot of interest in this book. And I remember he proposed to you like a guerrilla marketing strategy for this book. Do you remember that at all? That's right. Yeah. The, like I hadn't thought about this in years, but yeah, that does come back to me now. Yeah. I, I remember him, him uh, coming up with this idea. And, and I think this was about the time of like the Blair Witch Project. Right. And, and he was coming up with like this almost like found manuscript idea, which isn't the necessarily the best way to get a book out. But if you don't have any of their options, uh, self-publishing becomes an option. Self-publishing is way better today than it was 20 years ago. Yes. And I like that, uh, that Dean saw that there was some value in this book and said, hey, if we can't get a publisher to do this, I'll help you. I'll help you like guerrilla market this thing. And, and uh, if there was just some copies floating around yeah. out there in the world that got passed from hand to hand and became this mysterious thing, like we were thinking the, along those lines. Right, right. Which again, not not the great, greatest way to, to launch a career or anything like that. No. But, but what I do love about that is it showed that those who actually read it saw that, hey, there's something here. There's something special here, and if mainstream publishing passes on this, they're they're really passing on on something. And and another spoiler alert: Main Street mainstream publishing did pass on it, mm -hmm. like like in a big way, like like that really introduced me to that world. And and my introduction to that world was: we won't even give you a no. Oh yeah yeah, tell me about that. What is it? What does that look like? It, it looked like you. You, you do all the research, you know, you, you, you wrote this great book and you write a great query and you, and you send some sample chapters and you've done lots of research on who to send it to, what publishers accept unsolicited, what agents are looking for this kind of material. And you do all the effort of getting it printed up and mailed and send it to people and you don't even get a no. Yeah. You just hear nothing. Yeah. Right. And, and at first you're even kind of trying to honor, I'm only supposed to send it to one person at a time, you know, if they're going to take the time to look at it. And then you eventually realize 
no one's taking the time to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, no yeah. one's looking at it. And so you're like, well, let's. Why, why should you uh, have that kind of courtesy for them if they're not going to reciprocate with, with uh, similar with, with, courtesy? With even a reply. Right. 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 Like, like where as far as I knew, these were being shredded unopened, mm-hmm. you know, after I'd been sending them out for a while. So it was like, am I bad? Tell me that. Then at least I know. I, yeah. Tell me if I need to move on to a new dream. Then, then I can point. quit. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> they're like, whatever. But like, what, there's no answer. It's like, what do you do with that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I remember you telling me something back in the day during this process where where you described writing as this like insider's club where it was designed to keep those in in and those out out. Do you remember having that uh, that kind of uh, yeah. thought about writing? Yeah, that was my perception. And I think it was more or less right. You know what I mean? And And, and the reason for that, I think, is once you've Publishers are trying to make money, mm-hmm. right? And and once they find a brand that works, they want to put their money into that brand and keep making money. Yeah. And they know that when they use an untested brand, the odds are it's going to fail. And so whenever they take something new, it's always inherently kind of a long shot, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if they think it's really good and they're really passionate about it, they they watch it go out there and fail. And so they're like, okay, well, we know we make most of our money off our known brands, Right, And so we're going to put our effort and attention and money into our known brands and keep making money off the things that are making money. And, and that may sound unfair for new writers, but it, it like to their credit, that's smart business. Yeah, right, it, right? It, it's just it's just smart business. And it's also it's frustrating for new writers and welcome to being a writer. You know, yeah, I mean? yeah. It, it's a frustrating job, you know. And so you've got these publishers that they do want to find the best new talent. They do care about that. They realize that their future is built on finding the best new talent. And so they are looking for that, but they're not, they're, they're not putting their emphasis on mm-hmm. that with, especially with their marketing dollars. Right. And so when you're new in the writing world, you are working against everybody else who's trying to get noticed as, Hey, maybe me, Hey, maybe me. Mm-hmm. When somebody gives you a no in the writing world, they're not saying you're a bad writer. They're just saying, we don't want to invest our time and money into trying to make this famous because we're not sure it's the best thing of all the 100,000 things we read this year, right? right, right, and, right. and that's very different from saying you're a bad writer. Now, every now and then, someone might take the time and have the courtesy to tell you you're a bad writer, but like they might not be right either. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know right, 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 right. Because at, at the end, it's just opinions, right? And and they are skilled opinions, right? Yeah. O- opinions backed with... Uh, with experience, but... Uh, so you listen to anything mm-hmm. a publisher tells you, because these guys are in that business. You listen and you pay attention and, and you try to make the best of what they give you. And if they say your skills need to improve, you worked on um, improving your skills, right? And, you know, any writer will benefit from any improvement they make. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the better writer you are, the, the more chance you have to write something that can find an audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of, uh, in my professional work as a, a filmmaker, I, I do a lot of casting. And uh, and I'm working with actors all the time. And it's, it, it seems like a, a similar thing where uh, actors uh, sometimes put me in an awkward spot af- afterwards when they haven't been cast. And they're like, just t- tell me what I did wrong, right? Tell me tell me uh, wh- what I could have done differently to have gotten this part or, or do whatever. And, and truthfully, a lot of times it's not that, sometimes it is, it's because you can't act, right? Yeah. It's, 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 but, but most of the time, it's, no, you would have been great 
for like you have the skills it takes to do this, but we are casting somebody. We, we got to look at the entire cast. Are you going to play well with these other people? Does it, is this a good fit? It could be an age thing. It could be uh, looks. It could be anything um, beyond just their ability to act. And I think the same is, is for writers where, where their book might be great, but it might not be what these publishers are looking for at any given moment or any given time. So Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time it's as simple as, oh, we have somebody doing this kind of thing right now and we don't need two people right. doing this kind of thing right now. You know, it's things mm-hmm. like an available slot. Yeah. Which is has nothing to do with your talent at all. Yeah. You know, but if if they don't have an available slot for the kind of thing you're doing, then they don't have an available slot. And that's why it's hard to get started, partly. Right? Yeah. Tell me about your your mind space during that time when you weren't even getting rejection letters. Like, what what, what, is, what did that do to you as a, as a writer and creator? Well, I was armored up for it because I'd done enough research to know, hey, part of the price of becoming a writer is going through this grueling season or phase where you're trying to get the first thing published. And of course probably like almost everyone who tries it, I was hoping I'd be the exception, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. who cuts through quick and, and has fast success. And so it was deflating to, mm-hmm. to especially deflating to hear nothing. But, but it was also like a little bit expected. So I was like, hey, I knew what I was signing up for. I knew that maybe I would spend my whole life writing books and never publish anything. Mm-hmm. Like that was, I'd already reconciled in my mind that I like to do it enough that even if I never succeeded, I would rather do this than build model airplanes right, or right. watch extra TV or, you know what I mean? Like I was like, I, I want this to be part of my life. And if I never publish, I'll at least have done this thing that feels like it's really inside of me and I really badly want to do. And so it was disappointing, but it wasn't crushing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it sure does. And, and I think it shows the difference between people who want to be writers because they want a successful career, right? They want to be famous or they want, they want, they want the upside of, of writing, but, but yeah, what they're defines... Like, they're like- I want to. I want to wear a beret. I want to. <laughs> I want to wear a scarf and yes. walk around New York or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Go on. Yeah, but but what defines a writer is someone who writes, right? And if your passion is the 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 writing side of writing, that that's a very different person than than their passion is to be published, right? Yeah. There's, there's a difference there. Yeah. There's a couple, and, and there's also sometimes I want to be a writer because I want to be famous, or I want to be a writer because I want to make a lot of money mm-hmm. or, and the, and that's one of the worst ones. Like if you want to make a lot of money, go into a field where people have historically made a lot of money yeah, or, or where the odds are decent to make mm-hmm. a lot of money in, in writing. The odds are terrible to make a right. lot of money. It's a bad place to invest if that's your reason. But interestingly, if writing is your passion and you have stories in you that you desperately want to share and that you feel like if I take these to my grave, I'll have done a disservice to myself and to humankind. If you feel like that, your odds go up that you'll make some money in right. it, for one. And for two, like, yeah, you'll spend your life doing something that's meaningful to you. And that's true for any job. Don't become a doctor because you want to make a lot of money. Because if you're a doctor, you'll spend most of your days working with people and healing them and dealing with injuries. And, like, if that's cool to you, then, yeah, do that. If the only reason is the money, again, like, find something that's a really high probability and right. maybe a little less specific work to, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like, 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 I don't know, like, like, it's like when I go to do school visits and sometimes you see librarians at a school and you can tell they really like kids and they really like books. And like, that's a good thing. This person became a librarian. 
And then sometimes you meet people and they, they don't seem like they like kids. <laughs> and they're elementary school Do you want to drop libraries. specific names on? No, yeah. Just, <laughs> but, like, but like it comes across sometimes. And you're yeah. like, they're either not into kids or they're not into books or both. And you're like, why are you doing this? It's, this isn't even that well-paying of a job. Right, like, why right, are you, right. You know, if you don't like kids and books, like, step aside. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm a big believer in that for a writer that fundamentally – you know, if you don't love writing, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like there's, there's much saner ways to go about making a living. Yeah. And I like how you mentioned that this is kind of a universal principle to, to any career. If you have a passion for anything, this doesn't just apply to writing. No. Look at, look at what that passion is. If you are supposed to do something, you just fill it in. You just do it. Do that thing and do the thing for the joy of doing that thing. And then success will come. Uh, with, with with your passion behind it. So. Yeah, more often than not, that's that's a really, because there's so many options of what you could do. So, hey, if that's what you're going to spend a third of your life doing, you know, as, as a profession, then, yeah, pick something that you like or, mm-hmm. or that you're into. If there's anything you're interested in that you could turn into a job, you know, do that. Well, you had, um, I, I know you had a little bit of uh, fortunate circumstances with our position at uh, at Excel and some things kind of went your way. I think uh, to tell the story properly, let's, let's jump into the Pink Bible a little bit because the Pink Bible uh, plays a little bit of a, a role into what launched your career. So if you remember, we were working on a, a film called Pride and Prejudice. It was a modern day retelling of the Pride and Prejudice story. Tell me a little bit about the, the Pink Bible and how that, that played a, a role in your career yeah so these guys had made a modern day pride and prejudice which isn't even you know the first modern day pride and prejudice this this has been done before but it was being done again and it was done where part of the story was and can i say it was done quite well just because i was the assistant director on that film (laughs) and and proud of the film that we did there yeah 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 yeah. it was it it was we were distributing it for a reason right Mm -hmm. because because we, we, we thought that people had done good work. And, and as part of this story, there was a pink Bible in the story. And, and the pink Bible was like the guide to hunting men. Like, and specifically a, a tool that the character Lydia used to define who she was uh, as a... Uh, like, like a huntress. A huntress, of men. yes. Yeah. A huntress of men, yeah. Who was, who was applying principles of, of psychology. Manipulation and, and psychology yeah. to get a, a nice rich suitor. Yeah, which which was a totally funny concept, mm-hmm. and 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 in the spirit of the book. And so, as a guy, I was the head marketing copywriter for Excel, and as a guy working writing the marketing stuff, it fell to me that that oh, it might be fun if we made a promotional version of a Pink Bible. And there was a few quotes that were read from the Pink Bible in the movie that we could use as scaffolding to, right. to then build a little Pink Bible around. And so, I tried to put my my mind into the the head of okay if i was a woman trying to hunt a guy <laughs> you know what what is the what is the either funny or effective ways that, or offensive or offensive yeah <laughs> yeah cuz the whole thing was supposed to be fun right yeah yeah and so and and yeah so i i developed that so my in a way my first little book that ever got published was a a, a self help book of called the pink Bible for how to, how to bag a man. Yeah. Where you were a ghost writer on that. And, yeah. and we had a fake writer, a, a real comedian that you knew, uh, Marin, who, who played the persona. Um, I remember also with the marketing of this, uh, we had a pink Bible website and you would, people could ask Marin uh, any question relating to, to relationships. And there'd be like 13, 14 year old girls <laughs> 
uh, texting you online or, or messaging you online and you as a 26 year old man answering as Marin, this, uh, this female huntress coach, uh, giving advice to, to young women. Tell me a little bit about your experience doing that. Yeah, it was one of those quirky jobs where like, you know, like a job is getting about as quirky as it could get. Cause I was, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm answering queries about how to hunt a man as if I am, well, I was the author of the pink Bible, but, but I wasn't the face of the pink right, Bible, right. right? We had the face of this girl named Marin and, and yeah, it was really weird. I mean, there was, there was some months where my job at work was largely a big <laughs> chunk of my day was, was giving kind of quirky dating advice um, it, that was in line with what this book said. Right. right. And I think you, you probably were able to channel a little bit of, Hey, you know what? This probably would be a little bit effective, right? Yeah. Like, I, I felt a little bit like a traitor to my species yeah. or something, you know, cause I, I was giving like, well, what would, you know, it's, it's beguiling when you can't get them. Right. Yes. Like, 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 <laughs> like we, we want what's out of reach. And so yeah. I would, I would use that, you know, so I, I was using like what works on me, yeah. like, like what Laugh makes Laugh at my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And we had like, I mean, some things were just straight up silly. Like, if you don't smell like fruit, he'll find someone who does. <laughs> you know? Yeah, which I, I think is important to know too that not that anyone's going to go back and really look at Pink Bible stuff, but this was all tongue in cheek and and hopefully was received by those getting advice as as kind of a, a silly thing. It was supposed to be like a parody of a dating advice right. book, and and I think most people understood the joke. I would be interested to know if any long-term relationships blossomed because of advice you gave as Marin online from the, the Pink Bible. If there are any fun facts out there, yeah. like, like please, <laughs> like, you know, text or email or l- yeah, let, us, let know, us know. Because that would be hilarious to know, yeah. That would be good. So next step in publishing for Other End of the Hippo happened because our company got bought out. Excel got bought I, I say our company. It wasn't our company. The company where we worked. The company <laughs> where we worked got, got bought out by Deseret Book. And they have an arm of a Deseret Book called Shadow Mountain that publishes novels and you got to work pretty close with that. I think when we got bought out, you actually got moved to that, that side, right? Where'd you end up there? Yeah. So we got bought out by a publisher and I ended up becoming the publisher's marketing copywriter Mm -hmm. and worked at that job for a while, but it was actually while it was in the process of being bought out and I still worked at Excel, someone at Excel had given Shadow Mountain the other end of the hippo. Okay, and one and their main guy was a guy named Chris Schobinger, mm-hmm. and Shadow Mountain was a young publishing brand at the time. They were just getting started. They'd done like one of their book, Love and Thumps, but they were looking for like young reader fantasy, middle grade or fantasy, kind of like Harry Potter or mm-hmm. Percy Jackson kind of stories. And my stuff kind of fit that, even though like the other end of the hippo when I first wrote it, the main character was like twenty or right, something, right? right. right? And so when I went, can I just pause real quick there? Uh, The main character, as I read that story, the main character was you. Yeah. Right. Like, like you, you really wrote it your age. I remember he was a baseball fanatic. I remember you telling me stories about when you played baseball as a, as a kid and stuff. And, and as I read that, that book, it, it became very clear that, that you wrote yourself as the protagonist in other end of the hippo. And, and that didn't pay off well. It, it, it kind of explained why that doesn't work. Well, you know, it, it helps to just this talk I had with Chris, like, like kind of helps explain it. Right. So I'd been sending this book out. And as I mentioned earlier, hearing nothing back, mm-hmm. you know, not even mm-hmm. a no, 
which is the worst kind of no, I think. Yeah. Chris, actually, this publisher at Shadow Mountain was interested enough that he met with me. And he said, hey, we really like how you write. Mm -hmm. I, re I really like how you write. We think you've got something. Um, this isn't the story we want to publish. And, and what, one of the things he brought up was that the main character, he's like, it's just the feel of the story is a little younger than the age of the main character, right? right? Like, sort of like I had written in Narnia where the main characters were young adults instead right. of kids. And he's like, if you rewrote this with the main character as a kid, he's like, I might be interested in this book, mm -hmm. right? But the main character at the age he's at, he's like, I just don't, I'm not sure it has an audience or a clear audience. And he said, so do you want to try to rewrite it or do you have other ideas? And I said, well, I have this other idea at the time it was too much for me to get my head around rewriting this. This was the right, first right, right. novel I'd ever written. Did, did it kind of hurt where, where it was like, you need to, we, we would publish this, but you need to rewrite the whole thing. It doesn't work as is. Yeah. Well, like, like that idea, it was like, well, it'll lose so much of what I wanted it to be mm -hmm. if I do that. And I just, I couldn't see how to reimagine it. So yeah, it, it hurt like a, it felt like a death wound for that. Right, book. Right, right. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like, I don't know. I don't know how to rewrite it like that. I would have to, change so much of what I want it to be, right? Mm -hmm. And so at the time, I, I just couldn't see it. He, had, By the way, that ended up being the right advice. Right, right, right. right? Um, and, and not just like his opinion, but how how books work as well, right? There's middle grade, there's young adult, there's, there's, there's rules that you need to follow for these things. And you were breaking rules that you didn't even know existed. Right. Is that correct? Yeah, because if you want to get traditionally published you need to write a book that fits into an existing category. I mean, that's the basic way you do it. It fits into a category because if it fits into a category, that means it has an audience. They mm -hmm. know who to sell it to. When they don't know who to sell it to, that gets really hard. Now, it is possible to write a book that doesn't fit into the system that does well. And an example would be Watership Down, the book right, about right, right. rabbits. Nobody knew what category this was, right. but for some reason it worked and it did great. And so it can happen, right? But when it happens, it's a fluke that right. we talk about. Otherwise, your book tends to fit into a category that has a readership, like a thriller or a mystery or literary fiction or whatever it is, right? And so I had written something where to fit into the category of middle grade fantasy, like a Harry Potter type story, the main character needed to be 13 or 14, mm -hmm. you know, not 22. Right. And so because I, at the time, couldn't imagine the, the story differently, I said, well, I've got this other idea I have. And at the time, it was an idea for a short story. But I was like, oh, I could probably expand it into a book. You know, and I, I said, it's about a, a secret wildlife park for magical creatures. And once he heard that premise, he was like, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah show me that, right? And for me, because I'd finally heard an editor or a publisher who said- And this is literally the only response you've ever gotten at, to that point, right? Yeah, it was the only-, it was the only not just the only face-to-face, -face, but the only response. Like, I never even got a letter, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I'd gotten, so, like, an honorable mention in a short story contest or something, but for a novel, this was the only, the only response I'd ever gotten. And so it was like, okay, well, someone is interested. right? And I remember he, I, I told him, I was like, Chris, you know, if I can find someone who publishes me, you have no idea how much I have in me and how badly I want to do this. Like, if you open the window just a crack, I will charge through and mm -hmm. just take over, right? And and he came back to me with, well, you know what? You'd be surprised. Like, I really love marketing books. And so if I get the right thing, he's like, I will charge hard too. And it was so interesting to hear that because I heard 
a similar kind of passion as I had, but on the marketing side. And I thought, wow, that could really lead to some, and it did, right? I'm still working with the guy. Yeah, Chris Chris is amazing and, and totally talented and uh, almost a shame that he works for such a small publishing company because I think I think he has potential at all levels to do. Yeah, I mean, New York has tried, tried to buy him away yeah. starting 15 years ago. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, like, like publishers wanted to buy him away, big publishers and everything, but he likes living in Utah and Shadow yeah. Mountain's based in Utah. And that was probably the main thing that, that, that kept him there. And he also likes the publisher he works at, right? A cool thing about Chris being at Shadow Mountain is that he's pretty free to do what he wants there. Whereas mm-hmm. in New York, he might be part of a bigger system and have bosses. And, you know, there he's kind of the guy that runs that piece of that publishing house. Like he runs Shadow Mountain creatively. Um, and so... It lets him do his thing unbound, yeah. right? I'm, I'm, I'm glad he's there because I think if it, was, if it was a big publishing house, I might not have never gotten in front of him, right? Right. And, and I think at some point on this podcast, we definitely want to tell the full story of Fablehaven and, and how that that came to be. But but just to kind of fast forward through Fablehaven, you're able to uh, publish that series. How far into the Fablehaven series before you thought, remembered like, hey, I, I've got a pretty good manuscript with the other end of the hippo. And I think we can, we can make something happen with this. Yeah. So with the other end of the hippo, I had like everything I did on that book was like, not the advice I would give now, like, Mm -hmm. like, like Mm -hmm. at least so many things, right. The age of the protagonist was off. I only wrote that one male protagonist. And, and when I rewrote the book and turned it into a three book series, I, I added a whole nother protagonist because of advice from a publisher, right? And then not only that, but the, the character was too old. It didn't mm-hmm. fit the audience to have a character that old. I was lacking a, a, a main character that made the whole series work, mm-hmm. right? Which was like a co-main character so that the main character would have someone to play off as they right, went through right. the story. And then I had also gone on and started writing book two, of a book that hadn't sold book one. Oh. And so I had a book and a half of The Other End of the Hippo. Which which actually put more pressure on you not to change the problems that were in the original book, right? Yeah, because I'd, I'd gone in deep. I'd gone in, and, and I had, because I'd had so long of mm-hmm. this thing being unpublished, it gave my mind time to stew and cook and mm-hmm. make connections. So I had these awesome payoffs I really wanted to do in book three. And I was just so sad that maybe I'd never be able to get to do them. I was like, I've got this amazing story to tell and I'm, I'm, it, may, it may never get out there, right? When you're writing a series, right, the, the, how much time do you want to spend outside of the first book or the current book that you're writing? You know, how much how much forethought do you put into setups and payoffs, the setups in this book that aren't going to pay off in the next book, but possibly the book after that? How much time do you spend doing that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I spend, when I can, I spend years mm-hmm. thinking about what setups and payoffs I can include in a series. And, and that was something I did for Beyonders. The current thing I'm working on, Forbidden Mountain, that's something I've been doing for years and years and years, certain setups and payoffs I've been thinking about for a very long time. But as far as executing a book, you only want to write book one. Mm-hmm. You want to write book one, and then when it sells, you write book two. Now, plan book two all day long. Right, right, And right. daydream about it and think about it and outline for it. And however you plan, plan all day long. But don't start writing. But probably, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to get started, sure. probably don't write four books into a series that where book one's not selling mm-hmm. when you could write four book ones right. to four different series and get something started 
and then go back and write those series you most want to write once you have some momentum. And that's kind of what happened with Beyonders. It was after I was done with my Fable Haven series, which turned into a five book series. And after I was coming to an end with that, I had Simon and Schuster saying, Hey, what do you got? What's next? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I, I got this story. And so I shared the other end of the hippo with an editor there, Lisa. And she was one of the one, she was the one who pointed out, Hey, you need another main character. And, yeah. and she re-echoed, and they need to be younger. And by then, I'd had enough time away from the story because I'd spent five years writing Fablehaven. And I'd learned enough about writing a book, which yeah. was, you know, like, and, and how the p professional industry worked, that I could then go back with fresh eyes and say, you know what, there's some great ideas here in the other end of the hippo that I can resurrect. And there was some big blunders that I can correct. And so when I rewrote the other end of the hippo into the Beyonders series, I... I didn't tweak it. I didn't adjust it. I started with a blank page and rewrote the whole series, like rewrote every word of the whole series. Like, like I'm, I, I borrowed a lot of set pieces, a lot of moments and in, in characters, but I rewrote, so I, th you, I think, every so word. I, when I imagine a rewrite, I imagine you have a document open, you look at the thing, you're tweaking paragraphs and stuff, but you, you literally had a blank new word file and yeah. just start page one. You know the story, but you're just starting over. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I truly rewrote it. And and I kind of needed to because, mm -hmm. like, there was enough new main characters that it changed almost every scene. Right, You right, know, right. like, it was just to try to tweak that would have been harder than to just start fresh. And so, yeah, I just started fresh and completely rewrote it. And it's so weird because, I mean, I remember praying and wishing and wanting that book to get published partly so I could get something published right. and partly so that I could um, write the ending of yeah, the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause I had this cool ending for book three. Right. And I remember even praying really hard about it and getting a feeling inside, like it was going to happen, like that, that this was meant to be that this book was going to happen. And then just years of silence. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and I was like, man, maybe my intuition was way off right, or maybe that feeling right. I had, but then, in an interesting, weird validation of that, years later, after writing Fablehaven, I mean, Beyonders book one, um, A World Without Heroes was the title of book one. That debuted at number one on the New York Times list. It was my first number one New York Times bestseller. Oh, before any Fablehaven was New York Times bestseller. It was my first number one. Oh, so, first number one. Okay, okay, so, gotcha. So Fablehaven had been New York Times bestsellers, mm -hmm. but none of those books had hit number one on the list. Wow. And Beyonders book one came out and hit number one on the list. And I remember thinking... Oh yeah, if God made a promise to me that day way back when, yeah, yeah, he kept yeah. his promise cuz cuz it it didn't it came out way better than I could have hoped as far as it, you know, and book 2 hit number 1 on the New York Times list and 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 I was able to write all three books and and for me in some ways at that little phase in my career it was like I've made it like this is what I really desperately wanted to see happen and it happened and I was so proud of it and you know it didn't sell quite as wide as Fablehaven sold. Right. Um, I, I think it's a little nerdier. Mm -hmm. I, and when I say a little nerdier, I, I mean like there's a little more like complex world building for the reader to decode. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't, whereas Fablehaven, I think most casual fantasy readers could pick that up and have a great time, like Harry Potter readers. Whereas a casual Harry Potter reader might pick up Beyonders and go, ooh, this is a little much. Right. 
a little weirder, a little a little more to figure out, a little more to decode. And also, in a lot of ways, some bigger, more exciting payoffs for those who put the work in to buy into the story and build that story world in their heads. Yeah, because I know for, for Fablehaven, it's connected to the world we're in, right? It's And neither Beyonders or Fablehaven you could consider to be high fantasy, where it just takes place 100%. They're both connected to our world. But the connection to our world and Beyonders is a lot smaller than the connection to our world in in Fablehaven. Yeah, in Beyonders, by chapter one, we've gone through a portal to another world, and we basically don't come back, right, right for three books. And in Fablehaven, you know, it, it's, it's magic might be hidden around the corner in Grandpa's mm-hmm. backyard if you just had eyes to see that the butterflies are fairies. Like, you know, it's, it's very grounded in our reality, at least in my mind. I think that makes it a little more accessible for people who aren't that into high fantasy. Whereas Beyonders... Yeah, it's it's close to a high fantasy book, except that you've got a main character from our world. Yeah. Tell me this. Uh, you have now published uh, right around 20 books. Is that right? You're... Yeah. If we're talking novels, yeah. If we're talking books, like 30, but, but novels, like 20. 20 books. And what number book was Beyonders, if you could remember? Yeah. So before Beyonders, I'd written five Fablehaven books, one book called The Candy Shop War. And that was my only other novels. Mm-hmm. So this so, was book number seven. Book number seven. It was seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. What, what what a cool story to to see how Beyonders came to be, or or how I like to refer to it, the other end of the hippo. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time to kind of share that with us today and, and go through that. We're going to go ahead and close out today. Thanks for mulling it over today with yeah. me. Thanks for the good questions and good conversation. Hey there, fellow adventurers. I am Jason Conforto. And I'm Tyler Crump, and we are hosts of a podcast, Adventure AI, where we play Dungeons and Dragons with an AI named Alex the Language Lord. I'm Alex the Language Lord. Join us as we craft epic tales together. Do you want to learn how to use AI in your D&D campaign? Or how AI can force you to do things that you don't want to do? Wait a second. We don't like that. <laughs> Look no further. Adventure AI is the podcast for all your AI-powered D&D adventures. Alex the Language Lord not only comes up with campaigns for us, he also helps us create our characters, create our backstories and even give us some fun magical items and really takes all the human aspects out of Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) so it's not really playing at all follow Adventure AI on whatever platform you listen to podcasts